Stephen Shore. I, not specifically, but probably like undergrad professor had a book in his office would be my guess, or like brought it to critique. Okay. Or maybe a bookstore. I can't specifically remember. But it was around like college years when you were first. Yeah, probably like taking photography. Nineteen ninety nine. Oh wow. Okay. Maybe two thousand. Yeah. For me, it's interesting because um, I really didn't know of him as a singular artist until like around 2017 when I was really getting serious about teaching myself photography. So I, I would see some of his photographs here and there and get them mixed up with William Eggleston's photos. Those are photos from uncommon places. And, um, when you see them, you can kind of understand that. And then at the same time, once you really get to know his work, it becomes clear that this is kind of distinctive to him. But at the time when I, I didn't really know you're like, anything. You're like, cool, color photographs that are outside. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And they, we'll talk about it later, but he went on a road trip through the South and the American West, which is, you know, Eggleston's territory. But um, Who do you think pioneered the, the American photographic road trip? Probably Robert Frank? Yeah, that's probably a... And then, and then Shore did it in color. Yeah, well, I wonder, one of Stephen Shore's uh, main influences was Walker Evans. Did he ever do he anything did, I mean, like a road trip? Uh, I don't know if it's like as road trippy, as but Frank. definitely lots of everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, Robert Frank was probably the most famous as far as doing that. Um, the Americans, you know, that, that book is... Influenced a lot of photographers. That book's 1955. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, before we get back to Stephen Shore, I recently saw, maybe two or three years ago, some of the contact sheets from that. And Ooh. like the woman in the elevator who looks really lonely, she's an elevator operator. It shows other photos of her kind of laughing, and you realize, oh, this was set up. Like he asked mm, her to yeah. pose. Um, not to take anything away from him, but when you see the finished product, it looks like these are all candid photographs. But anyway, back to Stephen Shore. So he was really a photography prodigy. This is something I didn't really understand until I started doing research for this episode. So just to like, as like a young teenager. Yeah. Well, just a, a few quick things background wise. So he was born in 47 and when he was about, uh, so he's self-taught. When he was about six, his uncle bought him a Kodak Junior darkroom set. And then three years later, he bought his first 35 millimeter camera. And he also, in 1971, in his early 20s, he was the first living photographer to be exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art. It was a solo show of some black and white photographs. And um, anyway, you speak of black and white, you know, he grew up in New York City, uh, uptown in Manhattan. and In the 70s. Well, actually, in the, 60s. In the, in the mid-60s, he was about 16 or 17 oh gosh. when he was making, also, I didn't even know this, he was making some student films in high school, and he was kind of not going to high school. And at one of the festivals, or I don't know if it was exactly a festival, but at one of the showings in New York, his film was there with Andy Warhol's and someone introduced him to Warhol. And this was when 
like the factory was was at its peak and he asked Warhol could he go to the factory and take some photographs and he did and he said in an interview that in about two weeks he'd just become a regular there at first he was the guy taking photographs of them but then he really became a regular and was just hanging out and always taking photos and he also said that everyone there lived downtown and only he and Andy Warhol were the ones that lived uptown so after parties that would go late into the night they would take cabs together and he would talk to him about get some one-on-one time with Andy Warhol yeah about visual art and again he was 16 or 17 years old it's amazing. I wonder if Warhol wanted to talk. I bet, I bet he did. He probably liked talking about that stuff. Yeah, he probably recognized that he was... Like if Warhol world. was alive today, he probably would have like um, ignored Shore on, oh. and, looked, <laughs> and looked at Snapchat the whole yeah, time. Yeah, a DM or something, yeah. Um, but so all of those photos were in black and white, and I've seen some of them. I, I don't know if there's a collection of just those, but I, I've seen a fair amount of them, and... I was telling you earlier, I think they're good for nostalgic purposes and the fact that someone captured, you know, Andy Warhol in the factory and his people, his entourage, just hanging out, you know, after hours. I forget the name of the spot, but he said like around one or two, they would go in Little Italy and Chinatown to the only places that were open late at night to get something to eat. And so there there are portraits of Andy Warhol and other people in the studio. This is when the Velvet Underground was around. And anyway, I don't um, think I realized that Shore was really a part of that, yeah, that scene. I, I knew that like a couple of years ago, but again, when I did more research for this episode, I found out that, you know, just exactly how old he was and the fact that the Velvet Underground were around. And he basically dropped out of high school. But it's interesting because it's black and white photos, portraits of, you know, the factory people. And then just snapshots of them hanging out. I mean, there's nothing really all that distinctive with the lighting and the composition. Like I said, they're mainly good because of what they capture, not necessarily the way Mm -hmm. he captured it. But we already did an episode specifically on Andy Warhol's photography. And I was just thinking, he Stephen Shore must have taken something away from the way Andy Warhol did photography or, or his approach to it, even though they're very different photographers, I think that later in Stephen Shore's work, um, and only a few years later, but there's sort of a detached, removed quality mm-hmm. when he's taking photos of friends or his meals or the toilet or whatever. Right, like a visual icon iconization yeah in a similar way to the way that warhol made pictures yeah and also what we talked about on our warhol episode was that warhol was clearly at all these parties but um he was always a little removed in his photography and you know stephen shore later on mainly is famous for the photos he took on his road trips through the south and the american west and so he wasn't going to a bunch of parties but again there's um, even in American surfaces, which is most of his 35 millimeter color work. There's a a removed quality from it. So, um, right, like an observational. Yeah, very observational. Yeah, um, I was trying to think. Like, aside from that, do you think Warhol influenced him in any other ways? Because 
as I said, they were having conversations and he got to watch him work during what a lot of people would argue is Andy Warhol's most creative time period. Right. I think he was making a lot of silk screens then. Yeah. He wasn't doing Polaroid SX-70 stuff. Obviously, that didn't come until the 70s, but he was doing his movies and, like you said, the silk screens, which he's famous for. So Didn't didn't Shore have some fun takeaway from Warhol about the movies? Yeah. Um, it's so interesting how these things happen. So, as I said, they would share a cab uptown from the factory and he said one time Andy Warhol told him, yeah, for my next movie, I'm going to project it on two different <laughs> screens. And Stephen Shore said, oh, why do you want to do that? And Andy Warhol said, because my movies are so boring. <laughs> and in an interview, Stephen Shore said it's so funny to him because there are all these serious essays and film criticisms about the deep meaning behind <laughs> Andy Warhol's you know, three or four or five hour movies and really Andy Warhol himself said his movies were boring. So, yeah. Um, you know, con- conceptual success is, yeah, is, true. Some, is sometimes not entertaining. <laughs> yeah. But, Have you um, ever seen an Warhol film? No, not all the way through. Um, I've seen a couple of them. Yeah. It can be hard to handle. Yeah, I remember... Uh, they can be hours long. Yeah. Or go absolutely nowhere. I remember on a date on this woman who said she had been on a date with a guy who took her for their first date to like the empire state building screening. Uh It's like a three or four hour movie of just the empire state building. I think I went on a date once with someone to the empire state screening. Oh really? (laughs) We'll have to talk more about this later. But, um, something you said before we started was, okay. So those photos, those early photos were in black and white. And you were talking about how New York city is a very black and white city. And, in his early 20s, in 1971, Stephen Shore had a, a solo exhibition of just black and white photos at the MoMA. Like what? I said, he was the first living photograph for, or photographer to have that done. At like 25 or something? Uh, I think like 23. Wow. Yeah. Imagine you got a solo show at MoMA at 23. Yeah, like 23 or 24. And um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Because obviously now, you know, most people are going to shoot in color living in New York, but... When you think about it, just because we're talking about especially the city, Stephen Shore grew up in Manhattan, everything's so clustered and there are all these, you know, buildings crammed into each other and that really lends itself to the black and white aesthetic. Um, Yeah, I think I was saying earlier that to you that uh, I found that like New York is like such a it's a, such a formal place. The aesthetics are very formal and like, there's just lots of hard lines. Yeah. It's very rare in New York city to ever get light that isn't bounced off something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or or filtered through something in some regard. Yeah. And the other thing is with New York when, so even for him in the the sixties and seventies, if he was to choose to shoot a bunch in New York, unlike on a road trip, if you're, taking photographs of the buildings in New York, you can't tell whether it's a building from either the 1810s or the 1950s. Like there, there hasn't, unlike he's talking about cars specifically. When you take a photo of cars in the seventies and you look at them now, it's like, Oh, that's very much a seventies car. This this is on the podcast you sent me. The YouTube interview. Yeah. 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 My bad. Yeah. And, um, 
I guess what I'm saying is with New York, even today, if I were to take a photo of a building without anyone in front of it, you can't really tell when that photograph was taken. It's, it's just, just a kind of, you know, I'm really building. conscious of what cars are in the picture. Yeah, yeah me I too. I sort of feel like we live in this like post, like sure got this, got to be able to shoot cars for, t- uh, for like as a timestamp. But I, and I, I kind of debate this internally a lot where I'm like, I do, if it's an old looking car in the frame, sometimes I feel like I'm cheating the picture a little bit. Yeah. I mean, a lot of film photographers you'll see, especially on Instagram, they're taking photos of vintage cars all the time. And, right. and you're wondering, like, okay, is it the photograph that I'm reacting to positively or is it the car? But well, old cars are always cool to look at. Yeah. Well, the but, thing but it that kind of complicates the shit because like, it seems like sure got to use it for all his benefit. Yeah. And like now we're trapped in this world where we have to be super careful about cars and our pictures. Yeah. Well, in the early to mid seventies, he said that at, even at that time, he was aware that if he took a photograph of a car, that it's going to be kind of a time capsule. And it made me think since the two thousands, the silhouettes of cars haven't really changed that much in the way that they did from the fifties to the seventies. Okay. Like we're, we're 23 years into the two into right. the 21st like a century. Boxy, a little bubbly. Yeah. Yeah. They, right. they haven't. Cause even what people talk about now, which is the Tesla, the silhouette of that hasn't really changed. It when, no longer looks like a horse and buggy with an engine in it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, and we'll get back to Stephen Shore. This isn't a, a car show, but muscle cars from the seventies, um, you know, they, they look very different from like the big, cars of the 1950s and, and the hot rods in the right, yeah. the early 60s. And, and so um, today, though, I mean, once the Cybertruck comes out from Tesla, outside of that, the silhouette and material of cars in the last 23 years it really hasn't been a big shift in design. Cars are kind of fashion, though. Yeah. And even in the early 2000s, like rumor Hummers were, mm-hmm. were everywhere. Like right. you don't see anything like that on the streets anymore. Um, yeah, the Hummer craze is done. Yeah, with good reason with the environment. But um, anyway, speaking of environment, so after his time with Andy Warhol in the factory, like this was probably late 60s or in, in the early 70s is when he really started to color and um, – in 1972, he went on a road trip with a friend to uh, from New York to uh, Texas, a small town in Texas, and he said he wasn't driving and that his view of America was from the passenger seat and looking out of a window. And the other thing is he said he had never really left New York City until he did that road trip. So that really inspired him to take another road trip with the purpose of taking photographs and this time color photographs, 35 millimeter. And I was just thinking about how, you know, growing up with my family, we would go maybe from a different, like I'm from Houston. So we would go from Houston to Alabama to visit my grandmother or it's a long trip. Yeah. It's like 12 hours. Uh, and so, that isn't a drastic, that drastic of a change as far as the scenery. But I was just thinking about people that, you know, are from either 
Well, in America, New York is really the only city that kind of feels like uh, like a European city or something. It's the only city that's just completely different from every other right. city. Because even Los Angeles, which is a, a major, major city, the layout of it is closer to what you would find in the South and the Midwest as far as so like, you know, the suburbs. It's like a collection of townships or yeah. mini cities. Yeah. So I can just imagine someone going from only seeing Manhattan his entire life to going to the south and then the, the right. west. He was like, holy shit, look at all this color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also something else is uh, later on he would talk about how he'd take a lot of photographs where there weren't many people there, but unlike New York, you right. can go to a certain place where it's a small town and set up a camera and you're not going to have a bunch of people oh. walking in front of your your camera. So, um, But what I want to talk about is what eventually became the collection in the book American Surfaces, he used a Raleigh 35. Mm. So anyone who knows that camera, that's a really small 35 millimeter camera. Right. It's is it? It's like a rack focus, or it's an uncoupled rangefinder. Uh, yeah, I, I believe you, you like folk. You like put the distance on the focus as opposed to look through the frame. Yeah, I don't to know too much about together. that, but it, okay. yeah, it is a, a rangefinder, and um, it's a very tiny camera. And it's 35 millimeter color. And a lot of those photos that he took, he said that he wanted to just document what he ate, the people he was around, even the toilet that he would go to. And so when you look at American services, that's a bunch of what you're seeing. And he took tons of photos and then he would just, he just chose the photos that were his favorites, but he, he just was very prolific in shooting all of these color photographs and, um, if you want to talk more about American services and just how it's kind of the snapshot aesthetic, but it's still removed. It's not, there aren't any crazy things with composition or, or lighting, but it's definitely an art piece. It's not just a bunch of candid photos. There's again, that sense of removal and uh, observation that that's kind of closer to the fine arts. Yeah, it, yeah. Not only in its collection, but also in its individual yeah visuals. And then also, I don't know of anyone who was purposefully taking photographs of just such mundane objects, like a bunch of overhead photos of what he ate at a diner, like pancakes and cantaloupe, and then a, like a milk carton, and then literally the toilet. Um, you know, those Martin Parr photographs of food. I think, was that around the same time? In I the think 70s? they're probably late seventies. Okay, this was like seventy two, seventy three, seventy four. Yeah, I mean they're they're much they're they're like vivid color and they're kind of sarcastic. Oh, okay, and yeah. like hyper attention mm-hmm. grabbing. Gotcha. Yeah, but well, they, but they have a similar kind of framing to them. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that after he did that road trip, that's what he chose to photograph. You would think someone who's only lived in New York and then goes on a road trip to the South and the West would take more landscape photos or something like that. But, uh, right. But you know, the food is different and the, yeah. Gas stations. and Yeah. And then the geography and, and like the architecture too. Yeah. Like when you, if you you go to another country and you're like surprised at how all the light switches look different. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and then also there, 
there's a photograph of uh, just like this man's legs, just his legs. I think he's gotten out of the pool and one of them's bleeding or something like that. So it's not like you have to be in the South to take that photo. And I think it kind of goes back to what we said about the photographers we've covered, how no matter the location, they're going to make it look like one of their photographs. It's going to have that, that signature look. Um, and so you get a sense of what he was really interested in. It's, it's kind of just objectively looking at things that are in front of him. Yeah. That are in front of him, but also it's kind of fragments of, uh, of things, but yeah, they're almost like, it's like he's he collected different types of architecture and people and yeah, objects and textures along the way. Yeah. It doesn't feel as objectifying as it sounds. It doesn't look as objectifying as it sounds either. There's like a sort of like a soft human quality to how he approaches them sometimes. I definitely, or like a realness. Yeah. I think in American services, definitely there's, it's a little more raw than his later work in uncommon places. And we'll talk about exactly why that is. During most, during my real concentrated picture making times, I stayed away from looking at Stephen Shore. Oh, really? Well, let's talk about that. So why? I just, everyone else was really influenced by it. And I wanted to, uh, photos will seep in my head. And like, I didn't want to absorb too much from him. I I find it very, I I always really like them. Yeah. Uh, I also found it to be sort of like a hard quest to chase. Like it's sort of like a prophecy, an unfulfilling prophecy, or it's like to go take American road trip photographs. Like you've committed yourself to, 30 years like I don't it just it just seems of trying to make work that will never really be able to hit home like Stephen Shore it's just like he created a trope almost I think okay and like it's an accessible trope that that photographers can eat can succeed in and so it's like built itself into the photo universe pretty hard I I just sort of sensed that and was like I need to I was more interested in like Decorsha Philip Lorca Decorsha or Rocky yeah I wanted a little more edge maybe yeah with people right sure well with your work that that definitely makes sense and another thing I, I was going to mention is um at that time color photography was not taken seriously as far as the arts went and he talked about how his first color shows had terrible reviews and these would be works that would go on to, you know, be in, um, uncommon places and American services and and works that now are looked at as, you know, iconic. But at the time he said it got terrible reviews and he said an older photographer was at a gallery and took him out to lunch and said, you know, these I'm paraphrasing, but he told him that, color photography will never get the important emotions and Stephen Shore just thought well there are paintings that have captured important emotions for centuries and so color yeah he was very he and his peers were very forward thinking about how color is an art form when today that's kind of hard to grasp the idea that there's a time when color photography wasn't taken seriously but during that time period, it was only black and white that was seen as serious. And so I just wonder what type of mindset, I mean, again, he was very young, so that has something to do with it, but 
he was really going against the grain and taking a fine art approach to color photography. Yeah, I guess his youth almost gives him that opportunity. Too. Yeah. Because it's like if you're five or seven years younger than the person above you, you're kind of like more into the the apparatus a little bit more. Or it's like harder to break the tradition because the way you've been taught is so close to someone else who shares a similar time period. Right, yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, again, during that time period, most of color photography was like commercial work or advertisements. So, um, but for whatever reason, they needed Warhol to make fun of it <laughs> or to Warhol to exploit it and iconicize it before, before the color photography work. Yeah. It is interesting how that timeline does work out. Um, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about what you were saying, which is you're kind of avoiding those photos and, um, you know, it's very tempting to want to take a road trip and just take photographs of places you've never been. I mean, it's so much fun to just be able to shoot all the time. Yeah. It does give you in a groove. Yeah. You can learn a camera. Well, and especially if you're taking a road trip to places in the South and in the West where the sun is always out and, um, you know, there's going to be some sparseness in the landscape and the surroundings. So, um, I just think right daylight can fall without having to bounce off a skyscraper. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we're talking from the New York perspective and I just think that, you know, something we talked about earlier, which is before the podcast started, you know, back then it was something new and impressive, but today you were saying something about how, could quote unquote important photographs be taken today in an important picture? Oh, that like that. Or actually wait, before we talk about that, let's go back to, so that photographer who told him color couldn't capture certain emotions or whatever. Who so there's anonymous. Yeah. Stephen I, Shore's memoir. Yeah. Actually he named him. I just forgot the name, oh, okay. but, um, but that, that was the old guard that, uh, that generation of, Robert Frank and Walker Evans and Henri Cartier-Bresson. But in today's times, what old guard is there? Like Magnum photography, I think you mentioned. Yeah, I think maybe Magnum might be like one of the only real old guard kind of like documentary. Because I I think they have like sort of style parameters, but also subject matter too. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't think there's too much more of it left. I mean, I probably like the internet Instagram and killed it. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is there isn't anything that someone would be against that you do as a photographer, unless it involved manipulating the image and post, or if it involved, uh, you know, what's the hot button topic today, AI. But as far as just, Especially with film photography, just going out, taking photos and developing it. There isn't really anything you could do now that's going to shock someone in their 60s and 70s and tell you, oh, no, that's not real serious photography. Yeah, I guess AI would be the next version of it, unfortunately. Yeah. Or or like I was saying, if you go and post and you like, like even today, like double exposures or something, no one's going to argue that that's not really art. So, Um, but. Right. Well, I mean, composite images and photography 
I sit a lot closer to each other than they used to. Yeah, that's and, true. Like when digital happens, it you know, it's yeah. literally on the computer already. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you know, you're pleading the background. Right. And well, I mentioned he used the 35 millimeter. And so eventually he started to use a four by five view camera and then switched to eight by 10. And this is a really big moment in his journey as a photographer, because this is where the majority of the photographs from uncommon places uh, come from the eight by 10 camera. So he stopped shooting everything. Yeah, exactly. All the time. Yeah. And so he talked about how, you know, there are two things. Number one, eight by 10, you've got to set it up and make adjustments and comp and compose it. And that takes about 20 minutes per shot. And so there's that. And then there's also the fact that he said getting those sheets cost a lot of money. And so he was very, very particular about the types of photos he took. And you can tell a big difference where number one, the compositions are just so precise and so beautiful in, in these photographs. That's the the main thing. And then also there's really no movement in any of them. Cause again, these are eight by 10 cameras. You've got to really focus. And um, there aren't a lot of people in those photographs. There's, and the ones that do have people really stand out. Those are some of my favorites, but um, it really changed his, his photographic style. So the technology and the cost had a direct influence on the way he shot. Yeah, I mean, gas was a lot cheaper back then. Film was a lot cheaper back then. And motels were probably a yeah. lot cheaper back then, too. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's it's about, like, early to mid-70s is when he was taking these photographs, the 4x5 and 8x10 large format photos. And so one of the things that I was thinking about is in the mid seventies, what did it look like to other people seeing this guy with a eight by 10, uh, camera, you know, walking around with it, it's like 25 pounds, you're carrying it around and, and then taking photos. As you'll see, if you look at these photos, it's like photographs of just an intersection on the street, gas stations, hotels, um, and then there's some photos indoors as well, but, um, back then that's a pretty radical idea to have. I, I have a feeling that everyone's grandpa had like a tripod. Yeah, but there's a difference between a tripod and like doing eight by 10 photography where you've got to put that, right. that blanket over you. Right. If they weren't alive in like the 1910s yeah then they hadn't seen one even today if you saw somebody even in a city like new york if you saw someone doing that you like stop and and look and there'd be people around them probably asking them questions so i can only imagine if you're in these small towns in the south and in the, the west coast you know just to have the the idea to do that um and in a way it kind of does take courage um to <laughs> To be it's a, a lot spectacle. of slow photography time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he killed it. And I think this goes back to, you know, someone being really prolific and someone being very specific. And like you're saying, a lot of slow photography time, I really think it, it makes the photographs that much better because they, they're they sort of closer to paintings in a way. 
right. when you're really thinking about right, the composition. The- and also, there's a famous photograph um, that was taken at an intersection, and you see all these, uh, you know, telephone wires and all these cars and uh, gas station and little shops. And um, there's just so much information in the frame. I wonder, didn't Avedon have a road trip too? I wonder where your his was. Yeah. Another um, factory photographer. Right. I, I don't know too much about when Avedon did his road trip photography. But uh, yeah, that'd be interesting to look up as well. Um, but with with Stephen Shore, um, so some of my favorite photographs of all time are, are in that collection. The woman in the pool. Do you know the one I'm talking about where it's her back and she's in the pool halfway and the pool water is just crystal clear. Kind of. Um, so basically her back is to the camera and, um, she's in like, I think like a Navy bathing suit and just the composition on this is just so beautiful. But there's that one. There's the one where, um, I, a man and a woman are laying down on a couch. The man is laying down on his back facing the camera and the woman, she looks like she's in like a pink or tan bathing suit and she's hugging him and her back's to the camera. But it's just, again, the composition. And then it was taken in the seventies, but it still looks modern because you're just seeing a room and, and a couch. Um, and then, uh, Oh, I'm showing Steven the, Oh yeah, the, totally. Yeah. That, that's swimming. Yeah, the and, pool and photograph. The, the handrail is an interesting choice. In that, yeah, exactly. In that the um, composition is just so carefully considered in that. So those two are some of my favorite photographs of all time. But, um, you know, someone else might see these and just think, all right, well, this is kind of <laughs> kind of nothing. And he's taking photographs of old, well, not old, but at the time, probably just regular See some movie theaters, yeah, and, and um, hotel rooms, and like the there's one where this guy, all you see in the frame at the bottom of the frame is a man's um, legs at the end of a bed, and then he, there's a TV uh, that's up in a hotel room, and that's just it's kind of hard to explain, but that's one of my favorite photographs as well. And again, it's it's a combination of the composition and then the resolution so he talked about how when he first saw his 35 millimeter Kodakolor photographs um, when they were tiny they looked good but then when he saw them blown up to like four by five or eight by ten that they just lost a lot of resolution and that's another factor mm-hmm. um, that made him switch to to large format but um yeah this book was published in 1982 yeah, sometimes actualizing the print will make you not like it as much anymore. Yeah, that, that's interesting. It's not something I've done yet outside of the zine I've done, which was was already kind of a smaller medium. I think it's book. a good thing for for a photography practice. Yeah, my suggestion to people is get a laser printer. And buy, why like, specifically? A, they're just I mean, just so much cheaper and quicker than okay than a inkjet printer. Yeah. So th- this photo I'm showing mm-hmm. Stephen of uh, the man and the woman laying on the couch and. Uh, you know, there's photographs of like a, a jigsaw yeah. puzzle. He's so good with light. Yeah, it's it's, it's like so... it's not always even the same light. Like sometimes it's it's like that 
dusky haze or dawny haze and then sometimes it's like this bounce direct light or it's just yeah. so good with it it's, he, that's what's frustrating to me is like i it's so frustrating it's hard to achieve really good photographic results with light with just like great lighting natural lighting it's, yeah it's interesting he shot in the middle of the day or sometimes when the at the when the light was going down like golden hour, but he wasn't someone who was always shooting during golden hour. It was definitely, he'd shoot somewhere out in the West where, you know, it's the middle of the day and there are no clouds at all. And he'd make a great photograph with really nice soft light. So I've been in in the West in the middle of the summer Mm -hmm. and we've had to like, it gets a little frustrating because you like want to photograph all day long and it's like 90 to a hundred to 110 degrees yeah. Fahrenheit outside and you can't really exist. Yeah. So I guess I, I could, if he was in like a Southern Western state in the middle of the summer, I'm starting to piece together the, the like dusk photograph, a little, photography a little bit more. Right. It's yeah. like, that's the only time you can exist outside with, when there's daylight and you're carrying around this huge camera, right? Which is like, he <laughs> yeah. definitely had a station wagon. Right, yeah. or like some hatchback but you said something interesting so it's all natural light and that's something in, in uncommon places yeah and that's something that you know that really shows what a photographer can truly do when their only lighting is natural light and so they don't have assistance or they don't have lights set up and um, it's just interesting how he was able to make just these masterpieces out of his eight by 10 camera and whatever he chose to shoot that day. And he said that, you know, he would take mainly just one photo and move on every now and then he'd take a couple. But again, because of the cost of film, he really just couldn't be prolific. So everything was very, very carefully considered and and set up. And I, I think that we talk a lot about the cost of film now in a way that that can kind of help you shoot much better work because you're thinking about every single time you choose to snap a photo. Um, I have a roll of uh, slide film that I thought I'd be done with, 35 millimeter slide film that I thought I'd be done with, but... I want to be really careful about what I put on that roll. So you you're know. trying to create the perfect roll. <laughs> I wasn't it even trying to do done. that. I, I just, I just don't want to go out one day and finish it. I, I want to really take my time. So, um, but I support that as long as you have other cameras going. Yeah. Yeah. True. That's a good point. But I, I would say it's interesting that like a lot of other peers, um, after he did that and the book was published in 82 really when you think of Stephen Shore and his his best photographs or, or, or the photography that really influenced people it's all from that section from the early to mid 70s and uh, he obviously did more work after that but it's interesting because if you think about artists painters musicians and then later on um let's say movie directors usually those artists have different eras or different decades where they do their best work and finding with a lot of photographers 
they have like a few years of really explosive new work. And then no matter what, they really don't, they don't really have like decades and decades of, of really interesting work. Uh, Stephen Shore talks about this in the uh, interview he gives at the uh, German Art Museum, mm-hmm. the YouTube video that you sent me, where he is, he he gets to hang out with Ansel Adams. Oh right, and he's yeah. like Ansel had a bunch of drinks, and it's the end of the night, and he's like, I only made good pictures in the '40s, and I've been boiling pots ever since. Right, yeah. And Shore was took that to heart and really wanted to not do that. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just talking about what he's most known for. He definitely did stretch and and do other work and he's one of the the photographers from that era that really embraced digital photography recently he's done stuff in israel and ukraine i know he took some photographs of uh holocaust survivors in the ukraine um and he's done like fashion commercial work but what i'm saying is so doing like really influential work um you know, that was really just a, a few years. And I guess kind of that anecdote you were sharing about Ansel Adams, for those that don't know, a pot boiler, that just means you're making work to keep the lights on. And um, Stephen Shore wanted to make sure he never did that. And, and he really didn't. But um, it's just interesting that after, you know, those projects, 35 millimeter, then 4x5, and 8x10, um, he didn't do more work in that same vein, I don't think. Right. I would say that's uh, a pretty good character trait of a of someone who wants to keep making more work in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you set you set something out and you achieve it, and then you move on. Yeah, that's I'm a impressed good point. by it. Yeah. Um, he also said, you know, I know this is a, a film photography podcast, but we'll talk about digital for a little bit. He said that once the digital camera started to get really good, he noticed that he could get the resolution of a four by five camera with a camera, the size of like a handheld one. And that was part of the impetus to switching to digital, uh, which is where he's at now. And also he's very active on Instagram. And he, he also said in an interview that he's interested in making photographs for Instagram and not, and he's interested in looking at those types of photographs and not uploading your best photographs to Instagram, but specifically shooting for Instagram. And it's sort of this, it's the exact opposite of uncommon places and what he was doing with the eight by 10, not just because it's digital, but also it's kind of this, all right, I don't want to use the word throwaway, but you're just, you're, you're shooting for an app basically. And you're right. But, he, but he's, he's, uh, he's, he's reading the room. Or he's like knowing he knows like how to make work for whatever structure or media it sits in. Okay, like that's I, a good I think point. that's like you know like he, he what does he care about? He he wants the photograph to function well in its universe. Yeah, you know, and doesn't see any any point to getting the fame tokens off posting uncommon places or. Yeah, well, I guess it goes back pictures. to your point that he already achieved what he wanted and he moved on. And so obviously he has nothing to, right. to it's prove like a, it's to anybody. Like, it's like a new way for him to, to work with. Yeah. Um, he has been the head of the photographic department at Bard as a professor. 
and um, uh, he was talking about how you know it's not a it's not an art school it's a liberal art school and so he has of course people in his classes that want to be photographers we also have people in his classes that are going to be doctors or you know historians or educators and so he he thinks about what that means to have a classroom full of that mixture of people and the types of exercises and he said at the very beginning they only do film and then eventually they move on to digital but i went to liberal arts right uh, undergrad and and my professor was also excited by people who were not i think he either loved that we had a chemist oh right okay like a chemistry major in the class and yeah. just was excited to see what they were going to do with right black and white chemistry yeah um well you talk about how you you kind of purposely didn't want to look at too many of his photographs but i wanted to ask you what is it about his work that stands out to you like what is it that grabs you i mean that's a pretty big question yeah i I mean the lighting the light his like sense of daylight for sure his composition yeah so for me when i think of uncommon places um, i would say composition and then color and light those are the things that stand out and then also you know again making the ordinary beautiful I think that's something that he does really well because we, our last episode, we talked about Gary Winogrand who would, who was capable of that, but he would take a lot of shots where it was just, there's so much going on in the frame. And, and also it, it kind of reflected his personality of being this uh, sort of cantankerous New Yorker. Um, but with Stephen Shore, like we said, it's more removed. There's sort of a silence to it um, that feels more like a painting as far as uncommon places. And then I really do like American services. I I like the fact that he is documenting all of these different everyday things and through his photography. And then of course, through the lens of nostalgia, because it was a time period that I I wasn't alive for. um, It looks just the everyday looks so interesting. So like you were saying the way that maybe a light fixture looks, um, Different in a different country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I really think about how it's sort of um, it's sort of interesting. And Stephen Shore has this place in in history where he has this singular voice, and it looks like it's easy to replicate or it'd be very tempting to try but again there's just something it's kind of hard to describe on a podcast you you have to really look at the photographs but there's something that only he can do and and i think a lot of that has to do with probably the the lighting um and also i think that speaks to a certain amount of patience and um for sure yeah a real dedication to getting the perfect image to his art to his craft yeah to both Right. So um, you mentioned something before we started the podcast. Uh, Philip Lorca de Corsia in relationship to Stephen Shore. Mm-hmm, yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? You, um, I guess, do you think like he was influenced by Stephen Shore or their photographs? I, I think, I think a lo- almost everybody was. Yeah, but, <laughs> that's a good point. Um 
But yeah, it felt it felt like a more like narrative driven okay. version of Shore. I could see that. Yeah. Um, like the light sensibility and the composition and like recognizing interesting people and their potential to like bring life into a frame. Like they share a similarity to, you know, what's interesting. He's 70 years old and Stephen Shore is 75. So they're not that far apart, but I right, think but if Shore started making pictures at 16. And yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. The, um, Phil Lorca de Corsia with his most famous photographs were probably taken. Well, like in the, the 80s, 80s I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. So that, I think that the Hustler sense. series is the is the 80s. Yeah, uh, so that makes sense. Yeah, but um, as we as I was looking at his photographs in a a, a very um, specific way in order to get ready for the episode, and as we talk about this, it is very tempting. Like right now, I want to go on a road trip and shoot. Yeah, um, it's very tempting yeah it's hard not to fantasize about it when you when you're thinking about Stephen shore yeah 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 um i mean i wanted to do that anyway but as we talk about him and as i look at those photos and i've lived in new york for you know almost 20 years or i mean a little longer than 20 years um it is very tempting to to get out of the city and do that type of photography especially for the type of photography i like and the type I want to make. So, um, I, I think that, you know, there are two different types of, of photographers. They're the ones that are really prolific. And then the ones that are very precious about each and every photograph. And I think that probably now he's probably not as precious cause he has the digital camera. But when we're talking about the work obviously with um well i mean if you're using large format photography you can't really be all that prolific with it but um again uncommon places that's the result of someone being very precious with each and every click of the shutter so um i think that that's a good challenge to people who are listening that are really into photography to um you know, instead of, again, worrying about the cost of photography, you can look at that as a, a, a complication that yields really great results, that you'll be more aware of every single frame in a way. Yeah, but sometimes, like, taking photographs is fun and making them is tedious. Oh, talk about that a little bit more. What do you mean? I by mean, that? like the you know, traveling around, collecting things on a road trip is really fun. Yeah, yeah. If you have to conceive that what that means i used to be like okay you want to go on a road trip like you already have those photographs in your head what are the five photographs you want to take on the road trip okay you could make them happen without having to find them as much yeah well that brings up a a good point um the uh the interview that i sent you this was in germany and the woman asked him did you have images in your head you wanted to get and he said no he oh interesting yeah so he was walking around and he would then see something and then take the photograph Um, time before everything was pictured yeah yeah exactly yeah i try to mentally time travel back then just to think about again how forward thinking you'd have to be to um 
you know, go on a road trip with an eight by 10 camera and take photographs of the cars and the street and a hotel room and just kind of everyday stuff in color. And think too, that like ambient light changes on technology. So it's like, depending on where you are in time. And then also like the era that that town was built in, you can have a complete different sensibility of light. Wait, uh, what do you mean by that? Um, that like, there's no LEDs. Okay, yeah. You know I what I mean? Like, like technology hasn't turned into different types of lighting. Yeah. I don't okay. think there's sodium vapor at this point. Those are like the hummy yellow ones. Right. Um, probably a lot of thing off, things are fluorescent. Yeah, yeah. In the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is really soft. So also imagine too that like um, the highways don't have as much light on them. Right. Okay. You know, like things are darker then. Huh. Yeah. And that's, that's how a great I, that's point. how I see it. I n- I never thought of it. Like so that. like the road trip at night too is like it depends where you are. Um, like you know in the middle of the desert, there's obviously no street lights, but like, um, there also must have been a lot more like light reward for him once he arrived at certain places too. Yeah. I'm getting poetic a little bit too much with it, but you get no, it. no, that that is a really great way to to think about it. And also, his work isn't political at all. He'd be the first one to say that. But it it was interesting how, um, and he talked about this. He took a photograph of um, a parking lot with all these cars, and then in the distance, you can see a sign that says. Uh, sambo's chicken so for those of you who don't know sambo that's like a a very harsh outdated slur for for black people and that was a time when you know again the the early to mid 70s there were still places like that around in the south and in the the midwest and he purposefully um included it. yeah stephen shore's jewish for those who don't know he purposely included just to show like what is going on as far as you know, racial insensitivity, to say the least. Yeah, sometimes subtlety is more effective than yeah. provocation. Yeah, because if you, you look at this photo, the first thing you'll notice are the cars, um, and then in the distance, you might notice this It's interesting because it becomes like a, a document of racism. Yeah. yeah Which is like, when you say that out loud, sounds kind of horrible. Yeah, or, or like something you would not want to be making. Right, but it's also at the same time something, especially if you're from, if you're a young guy from New York City and you're going on a road trip, you probably see that and just think, okay, I have to document right. how a, ridiculous it takes, this is. It takes is. you back in your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, well, I wonder if how purposeful it was to include that. If I ever get to meet him, I'll ask him. <laughs> well, in that interview, he said it was purposeful. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And so he... Um, you know, again, coming from an oppressed community and being like a, a New Yorker, that probably really stood out to him. So, um, and then later, like I said, he did um, something on digital recently with, uh, he was talking about how these are Holocaust survivors from Ukraine, which are different from than Holocaust survivors from, say, Poland. Because if they're from Poland, they survived the camps. Whereas in Ukraine, surviving meant hiding fleeing going to like a different country working on a farm and then coming back 
right. and seeing that your neighbors moved into your house. And so um, like a different yeah. aspect to the diaspora. But he said like he didn't really put a lot of uh, text with those photos. So you didn't really necessarily know, you know, okay, these are survivors. So I, I again, it's not film photography. Um, it's, it's digital, but it's, um, I guess I say that to say that his approach is very subtle. It's not hitting you over the head with, with right. anything political. And then, and in that portrait series, the recent one, it feels more like a lens in it's com- confusing with the current podcast. It's a, it's an in on their stories. Yeah. But it, we're picturing their faces. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a weird way to have, this is something I struggle with a little bit with, uh, with like approaching art projects sometimes where I'm like, I'm like, is picturing the people who survived this situation having the right conversation? Like, you know what I mean? Like you're having, you're visualizing these people in their current moment, not like talking about their place in history. And then it becomes more what they're saying and rather than the picture of them. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting no, a it's, tangent here. It's basically, but. you're thinking about survival and wisdom as opposed to if it was taken at the time, you're thinking about the immediate tragedy that's befallen them. Um, right. But like if I take a photograph of someone's gravestone, mm-hmm. Like, and they're an important person in history. Like, I'm having a conversation about their history. But like, if I take a photograph of a person, oh, I see. Then I'm just having, then it's like a picture of their face, right? That's supposed to lead me to their history. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I wonder. This is different from Stephen Shore, but I wonder what photographer has really done those types of concepts that like, who's the first person you would think of? Um, um, who did, who's doing the same thing that I'm talking about. Yeah, Stephen yeah. Shore, with his current project in Ukraine with Holocaust survivors. Uh, I can't think of anything else at the moment. But yeah. But I know what you're talking about. I'm and, not, I'm, I'm not, I'm more critiquing the practice than the images. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, Actually, that that brings up something interesting because, you know, if you want to talk about concepts and and doing something and moving along, so it starts off taking photographs of the factory and Andy Warhol and parties and after hours hangouts in black and white, and then he does a road trip and in color he's taking a more artistic version of the snapshot aesthetic of this road trip and just different people um, – if you look at American services and compare it to uncommon places, you'll find that there are way more people in American services, but these are usually just straight on photos. And so he's taking photographs of different people and food and the bathroom. And then in uncommon places, like I said, it's more like a painting with the framing and the colors and the lighting and how purposeful everything is. And then later he moves to digital. And so, um, you know, when we were talking to uh, Stephen Brahms, you know, I was asking him about coming up with different concepts and, and how do you do that? And I think that it seems, you know, the, the really versatile photographers are able to have kind of a few years of a concept and just do that to the nth degree and then move on to a different one. And, 
and they really evolve as artists. And I think, you know, there, there's something really impressive about that because it, it is easy to get a lot of success at one style and just keep doing that for the rest of your life. Um, but it, it's interesting to make a choice to go away from what has made you uh, a known entity and then try something else. So. Right. It adds a whole other layer of risk onto it too. Yeah, exactly. You have to like re-earn your yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I admire the most in artists. I was talking about, you know, musicians and painters and, um, you know, maybe different directors where they'll kind of reinvent themselves. Um, but yeah, with Stephen Shore, again, when we talk about Gary Winogram, most he had a longer sort of span. It was like the 60s through the 80s where his, his most uh, recognizable work comes from. And uh, with Eggleston, it's the 70s and 80s. Before we started the podcast, you talked a little bit about some of his other peers like Lee Friedlander. That would be what, like the 80s? I think Friedlander is 60s and 70s. Okay. I mean, Friedlander's been making work his whole life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you think his, his most sort of iconic work is 60s and 70s? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we did, we talked about Vivian Meyer. It's hard to make pictures after the 80s. <laughs> it seems like it. Well, because it's like color photography it becomes taken over by commercial photography. And then good, it like kind of melds together where it's like then then color photography starts choosing art photographers to be able to feed into the mm-hmm. commercial photography. Okay. And like it just gets to, and then we start seeing these pictures all the time and they don't become a special. I don't know. No, it, there seems, it seems like the 80s that that was a really kind of creative hole for a lot of visual artists um, because if you look at American movies in the 80s, uh, it in the seventies, there are all these American filmmakers that were, you know, making all this great work. And then, um, a lot of them became overindulgent and, and went over budget and had longer, uh, shoot times. And then all of a sudden the eighties, the studios really cracked down. It was like, okay, no more of, of that. Like if you look you got at, to be artists for your decade, now make us our money. Yeah. If you look at what Scorsese did in the seventies versus what he did in the eighties, like if raging bull was really made during 79, uh, so anyway, I'm getting on a, a tangent with movies, but um, I think there's there's something in the atmosphere where um, it's kind of like now where in the 80s, things were very forward looking into the future and things became very cold and sort of robotic and like that sort of, um, you know, obviously everyone associates the 80s with yuppies, but just thinking about just cold, hard capitalism. And um, and like you said, now, or not now, but then in the 80s, you had more color photography and you had more people who could afford cameras and, and just shoot all the time. So I, I think, yeah, for those people, um, his peers, there's something going on in the 80s where they just didn't continue that streak of, of really interesting work. However, there are definitely some exceptions that we'll talk about later. Someone I keep thinking of is Larry Sultan. 
Okay. And I wonder, I feel like he made a bunch of work in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. He has a similar, he he gets light in a way that Shore gets light. Okay. They're different, obviously, but like. Yeah. They both be knowing their daylight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of any other photographers that kind of do that? Who, who know light like yeah Stephen that that Shore were probably is. influenced by Stephen Shore. Um, I'm bad at listing off the top of my head. Yeah, I was. One of the first people I thought of was maybe Alex Soth. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's kind of an easy answer, but but yeah, like you said, I mean, there are probably tons of photographers that were influenced by Stephen Shore, and um, yeah, I, I just feel like you know, a really interesting thing after people listen to this podcast would be if it's still up, like try to find as many, please go out and support and and buy the books, American services and on common places. Like if you can't afford to buy the book, just try to find those images online somewhere. But it's, it's really just, it's kind of something you, you, might take for granted because of what it's influenced. And, um, you know, unlike, you know, other photographers, there isn't like an attitude underneath these photos hmm. there. Like there isn't that sense of dread or like something bubbling underneath, like you'd get with an Eggleston photo. There isn't like a lot of action going on. Um, there isn't like a sense of humor that you might get from other photographers or a sense of pathos. And so that to me is even more difficult to make these mm, yeah. photographs that speak to you that are just kind of, um, I don't want to use the word plain, but it, it, it's basically, it's very sincere, I would say. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, just from the camera setup to what he's choosing to document. It's very sincere and yet it's not boring at all because of what's so hard to do, which is the composition and the lighting and and the the color palette. So it just shows how someone so young had a technical mastery. And um, I I think that might be part of why you didn't see more photos like that. that. That's something, there's something going on inside of you during that, that age um, that you can't yeah. really recapture. So it goes back to something you said, which is you either do your best work when you're really like young in your twenties or later in your like forties or fifties or something. So, um, but yeah, I would just really encourage anyone to take a look at those, those photos, especially those two books and think about how these photographs really grabbed people without there being some sort of additional commentary through the photographer's attitude. Yeah. Testament to how amazing the photographs are of Stephen Shore. Yeah. Just by themselves. Yeah.